This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on Refugee Women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says Survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we resume our series on refugee women by talking with political science professor Cynthia Enloe. Cynthia Enloe is research professor in the Department of International Development, Community, and Environment at Clark University in Worcester, Mass. She's been the chair of both the political science and the women's studies departments, and she's published 14 books on the interactions of feminism, women, militarization, war, politics, and globalized economics. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Cynthia. Hi, Anne. It's lovely to be with you. I want to start by establishing a few kind of shared terms. I know that you're really an expert on militarization and gender. So I'd like to ask you, what do you mean by militarization and how is it related to gender? That's really very helpful to ask it that way. Um, It's the process by which any person or any whole community begins to rely on militaries more than any other institutions for the resolution of problems, begins to think that militaries are the source of our greatest protection, are where courage and bravery and honor most reside. That's a process. I mean, when you're two years old, you don't think that. Or in a lot of countries right now, for instance, in Iceland and in Costa Rica, people don't think that. It's something that happens to us over time. So I'm very curious about the processes, particularly among civilians, of militarization. And so would you say that this process, as I'm hearing it, it sounds like a kind of idealization of the military as these sort of heroic protectors on whom we can depend to solve our problems? Oftentimes it is an idealization. Sometimes it is just a lack of imagination. One can't imagine that a vibrant women's movement, for instance, in the country, any country, is the country's best protection. Or they can't imagine, they, we, all of us, can't imagine what kind of courage it takes to be a human rights defender. Frankly, even listening to you say that a strong and vibrant women's movement might be the best security for the country, the best solution, it's like, whoa, that feels like this mind warp. You know, like, that feels... It's not in the public discourse. I don't hear it talked about like that. It's in a lot of discourses amongst a lot of women activists in a lot of countries. So when I first began thinking of doing this series on the radio about refugee women, I'm almost embarrassed to confess that I was just thinking immediately about refugees and about coming here and what that would be like. And I think at that time I was thinking that Refugees might be leaving their country for any number of reasons, including poverty or hunger or disease. 
Um, but what's really become clear is that the women that we have spoken to are really fleeing conditions of war. They're really fleeing violence. And so militarization is deeply connected to the creation of refugees. What are some of the patterns that you have observed about how war impacts women differently than men? Well, let's back up just a little bit, Anne, and say that sometimes women become refugees because of militarized violence before any of the rest of us think that society is at war. So, for instance, one of the common and awful uh, motivations for a lot of women to leave the country and to try to get their daughters out of the country is that an oppressive or authoritarian government has started to use um, the security forces to round up any women or men that they consider subversives, always in quote, and it's in prison and in detention um, or simply during quote-unquote interrogation that sexual abuse is wielded against women of all ages in order to get them to comply with the regime. But the rest of us, if we're paying any attention to that country, don't think that country's at war. So you can have militarized violence against women before there's a thing that the rest of the world recognizes as war, and that propels women to try and leave. That has been exactly our experience in in learning from the women that we've been interviewing, is that sexual violence is used as a political tool to coerce and silence activist women. This has been one of the great breakthrough findings, meaning made visible by feminist human rights researchers, that they have started charting since the 1980s especially, the uses of sexual violence against women as a weapon of regime oppression. And it's not that that technique started in the 1980s. It's that until the 1980s, either nobody thought to ask, well, how is sexual violence used by an oppressive regime as a political strategy? And secondly, until feminist researchers came along with much more subtle and much more sensitive, and I'd say compassionate, ways of doing research and asking women about their experiences, most women felt so humiliated by their experiences that they wouldn't tell anybody. And it's the exploration of women's silences that is probably one of the greatest skills of feminist researchers. Now we've got no excuse not to know. In several of the interviews, the women that I've talked to have told me that during their asylum application, uh, they did not disclose the fact that they had been sexually assaulted by the police or the military in their home country because, exactly as you say, they felt so humiliated and so ashamed. And, and would, they would also, and be afraid that their husbands would divorce them. Yes, their husband would see them as somehow dishonored or contaminated. Right. 
And what we've learned is that actually it's interfering with the process of obtaining asylum because if that story is silenced, uh, there is less chance of even being assigned to a lawyer and less chance of having the persecution, which is what has to be demonstrated to obtain asylum, to have that be taken seriously. And so this silence has this terrible consequence, not only that there's this absence of of healing, but um, that literally, politically, their story is not taken as seriously. That's absolutely true. And that really means that huge bureaucracies, both national government bureaucracies, but also NGO organizations and the big international organizations, all of which are central to these women's lives as they try to seek safety, that all of them have to learn these feminist interviewing skills, and most of them don't think they need to. Actually, that's been my fantasy also, Cynthia, although I've framed it much more in what what I would call, from a mental health standpoint, trauma-informed care or trauma-informed interviewing. We heard from a woman from Sudan who was in Egypt in a refugee camp for five years that the process entailed this series of these very kind of wooden interviews with an impassive interviewer who gave no facial response to devastating stories of trauma and how very difficult it is to tell a story for the first time to someone who is so unmoved and um, and has been taught unresponsive. To, and, is, and is taught to be unmoved. And do you think that's necessary? I mean, do you think that there is any consciousness within the UN, you know, Refugee Commission that that this is something that is inhumane and unnecessary? My hunch is, I haven't done a study of this, but my hunch is that in the U.S. Immigration Service and in the United Nations various immigration services and in immigration bureaucracies in other countries as well, that the way you are socialized to be a interviewer is to be skeptical. My guess is the culture of becoming, and this is all of us, if you were hired or I were hired, how long would it take us to absorb this cultural lesson of our new employers? And that is be skeptical. Everybody's a cheat. They're about to tell you something that will get them asylum. Don't believe them. Right. So there's this there's this preparedness to be taken advantage of, and there's this guardedness about that. Absolutely. doesn't mean that everybody in these organizations adopt that. I mean, there are people who have come out of either mental health professions or who really just have deep values that act as barriers against this culture of skepticism. But it's pretty hard to resist. Right. The process of socialization is so powerful. I mean, I'm thinking about what's going on now in the U.S. where there's such fear about refugees, particularly from Syria, and a a sort of sense of whether the background check process is rigorous enough. Um, If anything, it feels like the pressures are moving in the opposite direction toward more skepticism and more That's caution. right, and it's deep already. And as I say, none of us should imagine that we would be immune, that we wouldn't, within six months, adopt organizational skepticism without even realizing it. 
and then up goes the wooden face. Mm. I understand that in October of 2000, there was an attempt to address some of this, that the U.N. Security Council passed a resolution, number 1325, that mandated that women have a role and a voice and be included in peacekeeping efforts by the U.N., but also with a specific injunction to look at the impact of sexual violence. Do you see that resolution, 1325, as having any impact on how the process of refugee background checks and interviews is happening? It's great that you're referring to what in feminist transnational circles now is just referred to as 1325. It was drafted, and you can go online, by the way, everybody who's listening, you can go online to peacewomen, one word, peacewomen.org, which is a transnational website of feminist peace activists. You can go online and you can read the entire text of 1325. And it's not gobbledygook. It's not, you know, so dense that you can't make sense of it. And you should know that it was really drafted by transnational feminists in the late 1990s because of the horrors that had been perpetrated on women, especially in the former Yugoslavia from 1992 to 95, and in Rwanda in the attempted genocide of 1994. And feminists not alone, there were some male reporters that were very important in this, made visible what everyone else until then had just been treating as rape and pillage in war, as if it's normal, as if it's natural, and therefore you don't have to record it, you don't have to do anything about it, you just consider it part of the messiness of war. And feminists said it is not just part of war. And they then pushed the members of the Security Council, those are governments now, had to be persuaded that having a specific resolution on women in peacekeeping was necessary and relevant to the UN Security Council's own mandate. Because the United Nations had never, ever passed any resolution specifically dealing with the lives of women. So yes, it was it was an enormous breakthrough, and friends of mine were part of the feminists who did the persuading and did the drafting, and they immediately went into action. This is a time now where internet wasn't as common as it is now, just 16 years ago, but it wasn't. Right. And so they turned on their fax machines and faxed the text of 1325 to all their allies around the world and said, with this piece of paper in your hand, you can go to your government. You can go to, if you have a UN office in your country because you're in the midst of war, you can go and show this and say the UN Security Council obligates you to take women seriously as victims of war, but not just victims of war, but as active participants in the endings of war and the building of post-war peace. That's the double message of 1325. So the resolution 1325 mandates this. Since 2000, when that was passed, do you think it's made a difference? It's made a difference insofar as it's now something that you can use as a lever. 
if you are in the Congo um, or you're in Ukraine um, and you are in the midst of a war zone, you can say, but your agency, your government is obligated to do this. Um, and that at least gets maybe your toe in the door, maybe not even your whole foot. <laughs> it also has spread the word to local women activists in Syria, in Iraq, in Turkey, to say, we know now that we are supposed to be at the table. We have ideas about how to rebuild this country. We have ideas about what it takes to create pockets of peace or even a national peace agreement. It's not just male diplomats. It's not just men with guns that get to sit at the peace table. So that's really important. Whether the men who have the guns and the men who have the diplomatic status take this seriously is something else. So, for instance, if your listeners will go online, they're photographs. They're just meant to be kind of press photographs of all the people meeting now in Vienna, Austria, to hammer out a peace agreement in war-torn Syria. It's an urgent meeting in Vienna. Just go online and just look at the photographs of who is in the room in Vienna. They're about, you can count them, they're about 25, 30 people in the room. And just count how many women there are. And this is 16 years, it's all men, by the way, I was going to say, are you going to tell me or not? Yeah, it's all men. (laughs) Occasionally, you'll see a woman sitting three rows against the wall, and that means that she's, you know, some sort of assistant or clerical person, but she's not, quote, at the table. Right. So what we're saying is the need for it is so enormous, and despite this resolution, women are still excluded from these decision-making bodies. You can't sit back and relax just because a resolution is passed. No, exactly. So, Cynthia, we've talked about the impact of war on women in terms of sexual violence. I want to ask you now about the impact of the refugee experience on women, specifically as mothers. Are there aspects of being a mother that really shape the refugee experience that are important for people to be aware of? Well, I think from a lot of the women that I've heard speak about it, they're quite conscious of whether they are the mothers of daughters or the mothers of sons. That they think about, quote, their children, but they are conscious that their sons, for instance, face particular kinds of risks, especially um, they're worried that their sons, if they're even teenagers, are likely to be forcibly conscripted either into a militia or into a government military. And then they are simultaneously aware that their daughters are particularly vulnerable, not just to uh, rape in the midst of an armed clash, but also into forced marriages. A lot of militiamen and they aren't all Islamic. There are a lot of different kinds of armed militias around the world, that a lot of militiamen think that their own pride as manly men depends on having a wife, and therefore there is pressure on parents to give up their daughters as wives to 
invading militiamen or occupying militiamen. And so parents are very conscious that their sons and their daughters face particular kinds of gendered risks, and they will be motivated to try and get them out uh, because of that. It's also true that in wartime, a lot of women will be compelled to become responsible for the economy of the household and will have to find ways to raise money because either their husband or their father has been murdered or disappeared or has been drafted into the government's militia or has been kidnapped or voluntarily went off and joined an armed militia, leaving behind the adult woman, not only with the care of children and oftentimes care of the elderly who all live in extended families, but now she also has to somehow find a way to bring in income. Right. With very often very limited means to obtain that income. And I think about in this country, refugees who arrive here have refugee status and are able legally to work upon arrival. But asylum seekers arrive here and aren't able to get a work permit for six months after their asylum application has been filed. And they have at a minimum. And that the application process itself can take up to a year. So people can face, you know, up to 18 months where they can't even work while they're still waiting to hear if their asylum has even been granted. And that puts women in very, very compromised, often dangerous living situations uh, precisely because of poverty. Absolutely. And especially if in the country from which they are fleeing, they were imagined by their parents not to really need education beyond primary school um, so that they come with only rudimentary literacy and or no marketable skills. Right, so So they're in this terrible bind. Yeah, the pre-war condition of women is highly relevant to understanding what happens to women in war. If you want to understand, any of us, if we want to understand the experiences of women who now have become refugees from war zones, we have to also understand what was education for girls like in the decade before the war, because that's going to affect how they experience the war and how, if they manage to get out, they will experience their lives as women, as refugees. It's such an interesting way to think about the importance of care for the next generation. You know, what what we have not found is a lot of heads of households where they're men mm-hmm. caring for the children. And so if we're thinking about the, the education of girls as a real investment in the health and safety of the next generation, because if, if the woman is the head of household, so much depends on her employability. In fact, there is now a phrase, girl heads of household, because it's not just that adult men leave or are killed in war. It's also that adult women leave or are disappeared in the midst of war, leaving behind the oldest daughter as the head of household. It's a whole new, if you will, terrible category. Is that How common is that, do you think? Well, it's common 
enough so that people who are trying to be of help think it's a category. Right. I want to ask you also about how gender impacts the experience of resettling in this country, um, in particular among Muslim refugees. You know, xenophobia, Islamophobia are really kind of on the rise at this point in our country. And I think about how women um, may be marked if they choose to wear hijab. Um, What can you tell me about how gender impacts uh, women's vulnerability in, in terms of settling into their new home? Well, from what we know, and we only know because we're curious, we only know because we care. From what we know, women from any overseas groups are marked in particular ways because all of us carry in our heads our notion of what a girl should be like or what a woman should be like. And so this was true of Chinese women emigrating to the U.S. in the 1910s. It was true of Vietnamese women emigrating to the United States in the late 1970s. This is not new. We just keep forgetting, I think willfully forgetting, uh, about, in fact, how the dominant groups in this country in everyday practice made up ideas about what was proper for girls, what was respectable for girls, what was modern, in quotes, for girls. And in the 2016 era, we all carry around in our heads, and it would be a good thing if we spelled them all out to ourselves, what do we think is normal about a 14-year-old girl's dating? What do we think is normal for a 14-year-old girl to do, quote, after school? What do we think is normal for a girl to do in class participation, in sports, in Internet use? What do we think is normal for a girl to wish for for her future? And if we spelled those things out, we might be spelling out the expectations that we impose on 14-year-old girls coming from other societies in a state of destitution, fear, and uncertainty. Right, and then I'm thinking about what the cultural forms of punishment are for being outside the norm. Girls can be very mean to other girls in school. Right. And, 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 boys, and boys can be mean, too. You know. From a mental health standpoint, the research on bullying among girls suggests that the most damaging is around dynamics of social exclusion. Yeah. That leaving girls out intentionally leaves lasting scars that you can actually really measure even 30 years later. When I was in school, the phrase was giving somebody the cold shoulder just because they were slightly different or didn't wear the fashionable clothes, which, of course, is also a subject for insecurity of a newly arrived refugee and it's not just the headscarf it's also if you're a refugee what clothes do you have you have hand-me-downs or things that charities gave you and furthermore they're not clothes you've ever worn before and you end up going to school not looking like all the other girls you know at the lockers right 
It's so profound because, you know, there's part of me I notice as I'm listening to you that's thinking, oh, but these things are so minor compared to having survived a war or having been assaulted or watching someone in your family die. And yet the truth is they're really powerful. They're very, very powerful determinants of people's happiness in school, whether they feel accepted and liked and whether they feel like they belong. It would be very interesting to know whether in Portland schools now, for instance, are there any efforts for students and faculty and administrators, maybe with parents taking part, but especially amongst students, to talk about the rich and wonderful diversity amongst us that we don't recognize and that we try to put a lid on or try to exclude? I sense that that is happening um, more and more. We we had the pleasure of speaking with a high school student two weeks ago, and she was talking about uh, how she leads unity and diversity classes at her high school. Oh, so I know I know it's happening. Cynthia Enlow, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. I've learned from you. I really appreciate the way that you're thinking about this and the kind of inclusive and hopeful perspective that you bring. Thank you. Well, Anne, you're part of the movement, you know. So are your listeners. Thanks. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about Professor Cynthia Enlow's work, I encourage you to read Nemo's War, that's spelled N-I-M-O, Nemo's War, comma, Emma's War, Making Feminist Sense of the Iraq War. Also, a quick reminder to please take a moment and go to safespaceradio.com and click on Survey to give us your feedback about this show. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. You can also find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including our earlier series on Somali immigrants in Maine. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.